Men's mental health matters. Live life with an outback mind. Thanks so much for joining in Men's Mental Health Matters. That's what it's all about, raising awareness and getting the conversation going out there. Guys shouldn't be struggling in this environment, we should be thriving. And, uh, you know, the more people that we can reach uh, with this podcast and we can get out and do work in communities and so forth, uh, the better. You know, it's one conversation that can make a huge difference to someone's lives and help them, you know, turn a corner. Uh, reduce the risk of them experiencing mental health problems themselves, but also, you know, I suppose the escalating numbers of male suicide, which are, you know, not declining. And then that's why we're doing what we're doing here to try and raise awareness and, um, and make uh, opportunities available for people that can actually, um, you know, uh, take these options up and start to, you know, take a proactive approach to their mental health. It's, uh, it's so important. We're, we're really disempowered in modern society and, uh, you know, it's time for us to really empower ourselves and each other. So today's guest, episode 202 uh, now, I was really blessed to have a conversation with this gentleman recently, uh, Roger Eichler, uh, ex-policeman for about 30 years, I think he was in, um, and basically some of the things that Roger explained to me about his job, the impact that had on his mental health um, and some of the things he had to do uh, were pretty, pretty amazing. And, uh, you know, the impact that had on him, but also his family and everyone around him, uh, you know, was really significant. So Roger's actually written a book about his journey, which is really powerful. The book's called The Price of Protecting Others. In the book, it demonstrates that unconditional love and support placed on your family is so much more powerful and important than career. And I think in modern society, we get it asked about. I know I certainly did for a long time where I, I placed my, my, my status and my job ahead of uh, everything else and my family suffered for that, you know, and, um, and I didn't know any better. You know, I, I, that's the way I was conditioned and trained and no one really gave me the tools to be able to understand myself, you know. So uh, that's why we're doing what we're doing to actually like try and um, help people before they get to those issues and, you know, have family problems and domestic violence problems and everything else around it. So today's chat's going to be really, really important. I really encourage you to, to listen up and, and share this one with others. It's a real story behind the blue uniform, you know, uh, and the red uniform for, uh, for fireys or ambos or whatever, you know. Um, everyone experiences stuff through the jobs, you know, and if we're not providing support to people that do these jobs, um, uh, to be able to live their lives well, uh, then we've got a real problem in society. So today's chat's going to be really important. Uh, if you enjoy the conversation, if you wouldn't mind making a donation to the Outback Mind Foundation, I'd be really grateful. It just helps us do what we're, do, what we're doing here, to be able to get out and uh, spread the word. And I want to be able to grow what we do throughout Australia more and more and have people you know, working in communities so there's people there to be able to talk about men's health consistently. It's really important uh, to be neglected for too long. So uh, now it's time to make those changes. Alrighty, I hope you enjoyed the chat. Please email me if you like uh, with any feedback to support at outbackmind.org.au. G'day, Rog. G'day, Aaron. How are you, mate? Yeah, very well, mate. Uh, Canberra, you tell me you're in Canberra at the moment. How's it down there? Mate, living in Canberra, sunny Canberra, it's very hot at one particular building called Parliament House, very hot, okay. <laughs> lots of hot air there, but uh, <laughs> mate, it's a beautiful day today, this Sunday, yeah, it's lovely. Awesome, mate. Tell me, where were you from originally as a young fella? 
Mate, originally I'm a New South Welshman, so grew up around uh, the southern part of, let's call it just outside of Sydney. Uh, my dad worked on the Water Board, which was the organisation, government organisation that supplies water to Sydney, mm-hmm. and I grew up on two dams, or at two dams, and dad was like a, yeah, a foreman at both of those places, so grew up out in the bush on the outskirts of Sydney, but um, yes, a, a New South Welshman. What was it like for you as a young fella, mate? Were you pretty much uh, into all the things that boys were doing back then and uh, sport and all that type of stuff? Mate, I've never been a big sportsman. And because I lived out in these remote places, I grew up fairly isolated, really. Um, look, my, my nearest friend as I was growing up was probably a good 8 to 10 kilometres bike ride away. <laughs> yeah. Mate, so, uh, and Dad was always working weekends and stuff like that, making sure that uh, Sydney's water was uh, palatable and all that sort of stuff. So, mm. mate, not a big sports person and not into contact sports especially. Mate, I, I've, I've got a very gentle soul. Um, but, uh, yeah, mate, bushwalking, nature stuff, all that sort of stuff. Got a huge passion there, uh, yeah. Yeah, good stuff. Tell me, uh, was the water treated back then? Mate, it certainly was, yeah, 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 very much so. Chlorinated and all that sort of stuff, so, uh, mate, always working on that and maintaining the facilities around the dam, that's what Dad did. But, um, yeah, grew up um, fairly isolated, grew mm. up fairly isolated, but... Uh, coming from, as you'll see from my surname, I, I grew up in a uh, new Australian generation. So mum and dad were both, or are both German. Yep. And uh, we we embraced the German culture of our forebears. And I grew up believing that I was German and I used to go to school in Australia. Mm, <laughs> well, I, I'm, my, my last name's Schultz and yes. I, I just don't have the, the connection, you know. But um, yeah. Certainly, uh, I think the beer drinking sort of come down through the uh, generations, you know. Yeah, so, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I sort of tried to break that, but um, certainly mm. I had my challenges with that over the years. But uh, certainly, uh, I know, uh, yeah, it sort of goes back into the family history a fair bit, you know. So uh, yeah, 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 yeah. But uh, yeah, no, so that's a little bit of my background. But yeah, but and because of that German heritage, very much into the everything is on time, everything has its place, punctuality. Uh, do a good job, do it well, stop standing around and talking, just get on with the task. <laughs> yeah. And, and in my later career, the Australians didn't get it and they thought that I was an arsehole because I was getting on with the job and they're standing around wasting their time. Mm, I know, different, different mindset altogether. Yeah, Amazing, yeah. Mate. Tell me, um, obviously you went through school and all that, when did you decide you were going to join the police force? Was it earlier or after you did something else? <laughs> no, I, I, I left school in 1984 and had really no idea what I wanted to do for a career, I had no concept. And and mum and dad coming from a working background, like blue collar, there was never any talk of going to university or anything like that. And that was, you know, the smart people's thing. Mm. And so I left school, just got a few casual jobs, but a mate of mine encouraged me. He was going off to the police station to fill out the paperwork to join. Mm. And he said, why don't you come with me and see if you can get into the cops? And uh, mate, we went in, filled out the paperwork, he missed out on the opportunity because he was too short back then. <laughs> in those days, you had to be taller than five foot nine. <laughs> yeah. Me, six foot two. Yeah, they took me straight away. As long as I had English and maths as the pass mark, yep, I was fine. How Got in straight then? away. How old were you? I joined at the ripe old age of 20. Right, okay. So you had a couple of years under your belt. I, as I might have mentioned yeah. the other day, I had mates that were in when they were like nearly 18, just 18, 19, you know. Yeah. It's very young. 
Yeah, too young. Way, way, way too young for the stuff that you're going to be exposed to. And your brain's still developing until 25. And if you're, you know, taking a lot of trauma in that uh, in that period, I think it can be, you know, really, really damaging. I don't think it's recognised. No, exactly, exactly. And and quite frankly, now, if anybody talks to me about the police force, I always say, mate, get a job, go and have a bit of a career somewhere else, give the cops a go for a couple of years later on, but don't think that you're going to have been there for 30 years. Mm. Yeah. You were in for 30? Mate, I, uh, altogether I did 17. I joined in 86, end of 86, did five years. I was bullied out of the force in 92. Mm. Um, we then had the Royal Commission in New South Wales into the cops and a heap of cops got done for all sorts of things that I, I witnessed, you know, selling drugs, uh, stealing money, all that sort of stuff. At the end of that, I rejoined and did another 12 years. Mm. So, 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 so nearly 30 all up. Yeah, no, no, it was a total of 17 so, I did. Right, okay, sorry, I, um, sorry for the people listening. I think I said in the intro, I think you might have been in for 30, so I apologise about that. But, no, no, yeah. no, sorry. <laughs> 17 was enough. Yeah, mate, absolutely broken at the end of those 17 years. Absolutely broken. So tell yeah. us a bit about, like, the journey uh, in its essence with regards to it. Obviously, you went in there with uh, your eyes wide open and you were probably uh, pretty, uh, I suppose, um, you know, excited and wanting to do the right thing by the community. Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Mate, you, you join the cops to make a difference and, and that's what you aim to do. You want to make your difference. And, and in some small way, each person that joins does that. But, uh, mate, I did all of my career out in the bush. I was, um, my first station was on the south coast of New South Wales at a town called Naruma. Mm-hmm. Um, and then from there moved to the Hunter Valley. Um, and then I left for five years from there and rejoined and went straight to the city in Sydney and did three months there, hated it, mm. uh, applied for an absolute horrible little, well, no, not horrible, really, really isolated little one-man station called Pilliga up uh, near Walgett, Narrabri area, <laughs> yeah. far northwest of New South Wales. From there went to Dubbo, uh, did a, just sort of three years there, then down onto the Murray River, a town called Euston, and then I finished my career in Cooma in a pretty uh, uh, horrendous situation there. Mm. Yeah. So why did, yeah. why did you get out the first time? The first time I, I was at a little three-man station called Merry War in the in the uh, Upper Hunter Valley, and there was a sergeant and two uh, two constables, myself and one other. And the sergeant was uh, he'd been in the job a long time, and he had a lot of friends in high places and all that sort of stuff. But he had his own issues, and here I was, a young, keen constable, uh, mate, and I was absolutely smashing it. I was doing all all sorts of jobs, locking up a heap of people, issuing a lot of fines because we had a highway running through. So I was, I was chasing the drug couriers and all the people that were transporting illegal things between cities and all that sort of stuff. And uh, mate, he basically had his own things that were going on in his life, and I'm not going to say too much about it, but uh, mate, he hated me because I was basically showing him up. So he was just henpecking and nitpicking absolutely everything that I did. Absolutely everything. And then he was whinging to his mates who were inspectors and superintendents. At the end of the day, after two and a half years, I was paraded before the superintendent and they basically left me with an ultimatum. And they either sent me to a place that I really didn't want to go and had my career tarnished and they already held back my promotion by six months um, or I resigned. 
And that's what I did. I resigned. Mm. And I just couldn't stand it anymore. They were drinking on the job. They were smashing police cars while they were pissed and all that sort of stuff and getting away with it. Mm. And here's a young, keen constable who was straight up and down, clean, clean cut, doing nothing wrong. But I wasn't one of the boys. Simple as that. I wasn't a beer-swilling, you know, you know wife-bashing type guy. Mm. Uh, I respected everybody, treated everybody with due respect. I didn't punch the prisoners. I didn't beat them up. I didn't do bad things, and it was showing them up, mm. and they were embarrassed. Mm. Amazing. Yeah. That. Like, you know, lots come back to me then. Uh, as a young fellow, like in the 80s, and, and just what I observed at the blue light discos, like the coppers drinking and, um, you know, uh, at the back and yeah. then driving home and, and doing all that yeah. sort of stuff. You know, that, that is, life was a lot different you know, back then, but... Um, but yeah. certainly, um, yeah, I, it's very difficult when you're in a situation where you, you, you're basically right, trying to be as straight in the line as you possibly can, and there's conflict going on around you, which is, uh, you know, getting you away from, from what you believe, um, you know, is truth in its essence as a human. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and look, look, that, I really don't know what would have ended up, but I'm absolutely certain I would have ended up at a place that would have cost me financially and all that sort of stuff because I was in a, uh, a police house, so I was paying very minimal rent and I would have been shifted to a bigger city, paying full rent, all that sort of stuff. As I said, they they stopped my promotion already. Mm. They held it back for, I think it was six months already um, because they didn't deem that I was doing my job right. But in actual fact, I was. And when I left, I actually drafted a six-page report and sent it off. And I sent it to the deputy commissioner and all that sort of stuff. And when I was out of the job, I rang the deputy commissioner. He says, mate, you did a good report. Mate, I wholeheartedly support you with it. But, mate, you're out of the job. I can't do anything for you now. Mm. So, uh, so, mate, it all fell on deaf ears. And I just had to cop it in the end. And, uh, and then that's what happened. So, Five years later, once they got rid of a hell of a lot of police, a lot of guys left and 13 of them ended up in jail during mm. that Royal Commission. Mm. Um, they said, we've got a clean force and we need old blood back so i rang up and i was pretty much accepted over the phone mm, amazing tell yeah. me yeah. Tell, what was your mental health like uh, when it uh, when it sort of come to an end and you got out mate when i finally left uh when i rejoined in 97 and i i was medically discharged in 2008 uh my mental health then after that next 12 years was not good what about the Absolute. first time like when you when you the got first out, yeah. time mate Look, no doubt, no doubt I had some issues, but I was too young and naive to really, you know, deal with it or anything like that. I had no idea what was going on. I saw plenty of deaths. I saw plenty of accidents. Um, and in the cops, not many people know this, but in the in the police force, when there's a, uh, a death at a house or a hotel, motel, whatever it might be, a lot of the times the, the police are called to that mm. to go and have a look, investigate, see if it was a self-harm incident or a murder or whatever it might be. So I saw plenty of deaths. And, and when you're in small communities, you know all the people that you're dealing with and, and that live in town and all that sort of stuff. So I, I went to a few deaths of people that I knew, all that sort of stuff. So I probably back then when I was in my tw mid-20s, 25, no doubt I, I already had the start of some sort of PTSD. Mm. But, mate, it was when I got older and had a family, that's when it impacted me the most. Mm, no doubt. It, it really took its toll then. Tell yeah. me... Um what did you do when you got out? When I got out, um, tried to run my own business, had my own business, had a couple of jobs and all that sort of stuff. Uh, we had a recession. That was that recession that we had to have, apparently. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, so it was pretty tough. So, yeah, I, I ran my own business and did a few things. But, uh, 
Mate, I pined to get back to the cops because I really missed it. I really, really missed it, but I was too embarrassed to put my hand up. But it was through the encouragement of my good lady, Libby, my good wife. She said, look, I think you need to go back. And, um, yeah, as I said, I, I was I was back straight away. Mm. Yeah. I was really keen to get back into it, really keen. Yes. And I still miss the job today. Mm. I do miss it, but, my God, it has taken its toll. It has really taken its toll. Yeah. Tell, tell me, um, when you got back in, was did you have to go back through the academy or was it something you were able to just, like, uh, get the uniform back and, and why you went? Funnily enough, back then, I don't know what it's like now, funnily enough, they had a thing called a rejoinee and refresher course. So basically you rejoined, you picked up your old rank, and on your first day back at the academy, you're only there for three weeks. They, uh, On your first day, they fit you out for your uniform, and, mate, it was like putting on a glove. It really was. Mm. The pants, the shirt, the gun belt, everything. And then basically over those three weeks, they just give you a refresher course of here's the new computer systems, Mate, in my first five years in the cops, I barely touched a computer because we were out in small towns that had no phone, no internet, no nothing, mm. and there was no computers. Yeah. So it was all old paperwork. So I did three weeks of learning how to use a computer um, and, you know, all the new legislation and stuff like that. And then pretty much they put you back out on the truck as the senior man, mm. pretty much straight away. Unreal. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, so, um, yeah, been out five years, don't know what's going on, but, yeah, I'll be the senior man on the truck. <laughs> so where did, where did you go when you got out? I, I went to a place called City of Sydney, which is fair in the guts of Sydney. Mm -hmm. um, think of Town Hall in Sydney. Um, and we covered those blocks around Sydney Town Hall, George Street, down to Day Street and all that sort of stuff. So, mate, here's a country boy that's never lived in the city in his life, mate, walking around the streets of Sydney going, where the hell am I? <laughs> <laughs> I can tell you how to get to Burke or get get to Ningen or get to any country town, but in the city, I was totally lost. Had no idea, no idea. Mate, I was on the radio calling VKG on the radio, saying, "Mate, I'm next to a Macca's in a big shiny building. Can you come and give me some help? I don't know where I am." <laughs> and they go, "Tell us the name of the street." I'd ask a pedestrian, "Where am I?" <laughs> mm, mate, I uh, I know the feeling. Trust me. Uh, yeah, <laughs> you, you can. Take the boy so, out of the country, uh, but you can't take the country out of the boy, really, can you? That's it. That's it. Yeah, and we were living in Gosford, so I was commuting three hours each way to get to and from work. Mm. So I was doing a 12-hour shift with six hours of commuting on top of that. So I was away from home for 18 hours a day. Mm. Yeah, And it was killing us, and that's why I hated it, and I just wanted to get back out in the bush. Yeah. So, so I applied for this, you know, job that was out of this tiny little town that had been vacant for nearly two years. And it was becoming very hot potato in politics, local government, uh, local uh, politics. And um, I put my hand up for it and I was accepted over the phone. Mm, yeah. They were that was that desperate to be filled because the local member was causing waves in parliament. And they, they had me there within three weeks. Was yeah. your, your wife was okay to be moving around like this? Oh, she wanted to get back out in the country, but um, it, it wasn't the best place, of course. Um, it, it, it's one of those special stations that if you do a period of time there, mate, you get a free kick to wherever you want to go. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, look, we only lasted seven months there because they realised that me as a brand-new, fresh probationary constable still hadn't been given his stripes, but, you know, yeah, I'm the senior man on the truck. Mm. But you can't have probationary constables at one man at one man stations, and they made a mistake, and that's when they shipped us off to Dubbo. Mm. Yeah. Amazing. Tell me, so when did the, the enjoyment really start to go out of the job as you as you went along, you know, through the journey? Obviously, uh, there was uh, yeah. lots of internal well, issues. Yeah. That, that, 
that was 97, 98. And then, look, the last two or three years of, of being in the cops, you know, by the time I was after about 15 years in the cops, mate, it, it was just taking its toll. Total burnout, mm. extreme burnt out and PTSD, not only from the jobs I was dealing with, but PTSD from being, yet again, um, being challenged by management and bullied and harassed and all that sort of thing. And mate, the final thing was a night in, uh, in Cooma in 2006 where I had a, an accident and nearly killed a 15-year-old boy mm. during the course of my duties. And, mate, yeah, I was done, absolutely done. Yeah, was there, was there much yeah support absolutely for you cooked. Was there much support, Sorry? Was there much support for you as an individual then? <laughs> mate, mate, the actual support did not come from work at all, apart from a few colleagues that would call in and say, how are you going? Mate, every ounce of support that I received came from home, from, from Libby. Um, mate, if she wasn't there, I would most certainly be dead. Mm, mm. Absolutely certain of it. Mm. Mate, the, the boss... The bosses had no idea and they most likely still don't have any idea how to deal with this stuff. Mm. Like any job, they go and do courses on whatever it might be, on how to be touchy-feely and, and covering respect and diversity and all that sort of stuff, putting it into practice and dealing with it professionally, no concept, mm. absolutely no concept. And I went to, oh, look, in 17 years, I probably went to hundreds of really critical jobs where Mate, I was going to die or dealt with some really horrible, toxic things. Mm. And I was never debriefed once in 17 years. Mm. Never. Tell never, me. ever. Tell me. And then, when you, and then when you put your hand up and say, look, I'm struggling, oh, stop slacking off, Roger. And you go off on sick. Oh, look, he's just chucking a sickie. He's useless. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, mate, it makes uh, complete sense to me. It's not just in the police. It's in other, other you know. Oh. Yeah. Uh, areas too and certainly Rog um, you know was there any time in the force where you, you had your life threatened plenty yeah absolutely plenty mate uh, I, I was threatened with body bodily fluids needles scissors knives guns sawn off shotguns uh, fists feet teeth uh, axes shovels you name it mate I've had everything threatened at me mm. uh, people trying to run me down of course mate heaps of times Heaps of times. All in mate, and that's, towns. that's had an impact as well. And, mate, I've spoken to a myriad of councils over the years and they say, Roger, you've got to avoid trying to deal with things that trigger you. But ev everyday life triggers me, everything. Mm -hmm. Mate, you look at a power pole and I know I've been to accidents where people are taking their lives by driving into a power pole. Mm -hmm. mate, all that sort of stuff. Mate, all these triggers are there every single day. So how do you not deal with it? Yes, yeah, I understand. Tell me, um, they were all obviously in country towns. So a lot of this stuff's, uh, you know, occurring just outside of cities. It's actually like in small regional areas as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And that's why I've reached out to you because you, you you've got a, a a podcast about outback mindset and all that sort of stuff. And and mate, I can relate to all the country people because mate, I went to some seriously tragic things in in small regional towns. Mate, eighteen year old boys out in the bush, mate, that have taken their lives. Mm. Mate, I've been to all sorts of stuff out in the bush, people injured on farms and all that sort of stuff. Mm. Mate, and, mate, I was nearly killed by a friend who was a professional roost shooter and he had done something really, really dumb and killed a mate of his. He took his gun and hid under his sharing shed and I was trying to find him and, mate, I was going to have my head blown off mm. because, mate, he, he knew he was going to jail. 
but maybe he was pissed and he just did something really, really dumb. So he took his gun and hid under a shearing shed. And while I'm looking for him, mate, I was waiting for my head to be blown off by a triple two. Mm. Whereabouts yeah. were you? What, what town were you in then? Mate, I was in a town called Euston, down on the Murray River. Out near, uh, ne- out near the South Australian corner of New South Wales. Yes. Yeah. yeah. No, well. Uh, yeah. Mate, um, how do you cope with something like that when you know everyone in the town? You know, you've got to knock off that night and go home to bed. What did you do yeah. that night? Mate, at the end of 2002, well, the whole year of 2002 was just a nightmare. I was in a, Houston is a two-man police station. So basically they, the, the figures are roughly, let's say roughly, that every 500 citizens needs one police officer. But Houston is a funny area because you've got a major highway running through town. And Houston is only a town of 500 people, but they have two police there. Mm. Or they should have two police there. And I was there by myself for three and a half years, uh, for probably two of those three and a half years at least. And 2002 was a horrendously tragic year for the town um, because I went to a suicide in, I think it was the September, uh, end of September. Then this incident happened in uh, November. And then a couple of weeks after that, we had another suicide of another local, another guy that I knew, an 18-year-old young fella. Knew him quite well, and his parents were friends of ours. So, mm. mate, how do you cope with something like that? Yes. Mate, you go home, your head is reeling, your head's spinning. How do you come to terms with it? Because you've arrested somebody that everybody knows. You've dealt with a tragedy where everybody knows somebody or something right like that, and you're just trying to go, do I look after the community? Do I look after myself? Do I look after my family? Mate, you, you can't. You, you can't control it. Well, I couldn't. Mate, I'm one of those people that, uh, as I said, I'm a very gentle soul and I try and console everybody, but I don't do a lot of self-care. So I didn't do a lot of self-care. And both Libby and I, we looked after the community first. We put on a community forum for the town to help deal with emotional stress and trauma so people could get coping mechanisms. Mm. And we didn't do enough for ourselves. Yeah. And when I put my hand up to say I need a hand, mate, of course, the boss who's nearly 300 k's away had no concept because they didn't even come out to have a look at some of these jobs to even give me a hand. Yeah. Just deal with it yourself, Rog. It's all your problem. And then when I finally put my hand up and, and left work for eight weeks on uh, workers' comp, mate, I, I was rung up three days after I left on workers' comp and was abused by the boss. Mm. What, what was the conversation? The conversation was, Roger, you're a slacker. Mate, I, I was there on the night. I did something for you, blah, blah, blah. And I'm going, mate, I'm not coping. I'm not coping. I don't care. But, you know, I, I did this for you. I did that for you. Mate, I'm not coping. I'm struggling. Mm. I'm dealing with nightmares, sexual dysfunction, alcoholism, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And I'm not coping. And when I finally went back to work, um, not a single phone call, not a single email, not a single, oh, let's give you a hand, Rog, blah, blah, blah. Nothing. Mm. Absolutely nothing. So I went back to work for four more years before I finally broke. Mm. Mate, yeah. you know, it was coming, obviously. Um, yep. You know, I, I, you know, reflecting on some of my own situations where, you know, I've, I've put my heart and soul into a job and got a redundancy or whatever and, um, you know, you don't get any feedback or support or anything and, and that's terrible. No. That, that is not human. Humanity no. you know, is not supporting you when, uh, when you need it most. Uh, yeah. humane I should say not humane but um, but certainly it's um, you know it's a problem in society we've got to start to be able to get 
together as people, as communities, to lay down our bloody um, our egos in many ways and actually start to look after each other because really we go through life and it's the competition, you know, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, where we're competing yeah. against bloody everyone else and we've got judgments and opinions and all those things that uh, that really strip yeah. us away from the real essence of what it is to be, you know, a, a kind, loving, generous, aware person, which most country people are, you know. But um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. We, we we lose that, uh, you know, um, that that level of, of respect. And you know, you guys in those jobs, um, yeah. you know, we we don't actually understand what what goes on when you put that uniform on and what goes on when you take it off. Yeah, that's it. And the and the thing is, you put on that uniform and you think you're six foot tall and bulletproof and. All it is is just a blue shirt or whatever state you're in. It's just a shirt, really. Mm. And But it, because you give so much to the community, it becomes your identity. Yeah. Even when you're off duty, it becomes your identity and people recognise you and all that sort of stuff. And then, and then one day when you lose that identity, like I did, my, my career was literally taken away from me. I'll explain that later in our talk, but, mm. mate, it was taken from me. So I had to create another identity, and my identity after I left the cops was as a broken cop, mm. and that was my identity. And I would introduce people, introduce myself to people, sorry, mm. and say, "Yeah, I'm an ex-cop, but I'm broken." Blah blah blah. And then I, years later, I I had a a big experience where I nearly lost Libby, and uh, I had to. I finally realised that I had to lose that stupid identity, mm. and become Roger. Not mm. not a broken ex-cop. I had to become Roger, the loving father, husband, uncle, everything, you know, instead of just the next cop who's got head noises. Mm, mate, um, I wish we had this conversation about seven years ago because that's exactly what happened to me. You know, I, I was yeah. stressed and all that type of stuff. And, uh, uh, you know, all I was looking after myself, you know, my marriage broke down because I wasn't, you know, able to do what you did. And uh, lots of guys do that, you know, uh, because yeah. we don't, yeah. don't really have the awareness to be able to pull it back. And, you know, congratulations for being able to be brave enough to turn things around. Yeah, yeah. Well, and here's the thing. when It's still like that today in, in, in a lot of the rural communities with the um, police officers and everything. When you're the a policeman in such a small town your wife is your right hand man mm. your wife is a person that answers the door when you're not around they answer the phone when you're not around they get all the door knocks and all that sort of stuff so they get all the impact of what you're dealing with and you might be dealing with a fatal accident you know investigating a fatal accident but she's there listening to it all absorbing it all because the police station is either next to the house mm. or attached to the house so she sees and hears everything so she's getting the vicarious trauma because then she has to pack you up and look after you at the end of the day after you've pulled the body out of the car or whatever it might be. Yeah. So we've been dealing with this stuff for way too long, mm. way too long. There's so much yeah. more than um, than being uh, married to Roger, isn't there? You know. You know oh yeah, probably yeah. Not absolutely. Seen, seen Roger absolutely. Much. Yeah. yeah, married to the job. Absolutely. Mm. Yep. Mm. Yep. Yeah, we see the benefits, don't we? Like, you know, if you're a principal of school, you might get a house supplied uh, near the school, or if you're a, yeah. you know, you're a, a remote policeman, you might have all this, and people maybe think that's uh, that's great, but there's so much more beyond it because you actually, like, just attach that identity, as you said. 
Yeah, yeah. And you go down the street to buy a litre of milk and they're all looking at you and going, oh, there's the copper and his wife or whatever or other. And, mm. and then when she's off doing whatever, and she might be copying abuse or the kids are being, like our, like we found out years and years later that our kids were being bullied at school or isolated because they were the copper's kids. Mm. Mm. Yeah, And we weren't told at the time. Nobody ever told us. But um, our kids told us years later, yeah, 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 I hated it there because, yeah, we were bullied and just had no friends. Mm, unreal. Tell me, yeah. um, what did you do to look after yourself, like when you did have downtime when you are on the job? When I was on the job, mm. uh, when I was still in the cops, um, we, especially in places like Euston and those small towns, we had a camper trailer and we would just pack it all up and go away. Mm-hmm. The only way to get a break from being... In that fishbowl environment in a in a small town was to pack up the camper trailer and the four-wheel drive and just disappear to a national park somewhere and go camping connect with the family connect with the kids teach them how to make damper go fishing whatever it might be um yeah we saw a lot of australia by doing that and because i was in such a small station i ran the rosters of course to suit our family lifestyle Mm. and and the only way to get a break was to get away yeah no, we yeah. couldn't jump on a plane and go to Bali. We just didn't have the resources <laughs> or money for that sort of stuff. So we did the cheap option. We had a camper trailer and we just disappeared and saw Ayers Rock, Darwin, um, you know, Broken Hill, all sorts of lovely little places. Uh, and, that, and that was the only way we could get some downtime. But reflecting on it now, mum and dad were drinking a little bit too much back then too. <laughs> Yeah, no doubt. You, you get away and you switch off and uh, you, you probably come back from holidays worse for wear than what you did when you left. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, uh, yeah, and you know, because my PTSD was accelerating at a million miles an hour out at Euston and then in Cooma, mate, I, I, the family was walking on eggshells. Mate, I was an uptight, angry, um, snappy father, snapping at the kids for not picking up, mm. you know, their dirty washing or whatever. Or I was screaming at them for useless things, really. Yes. Sounds but, familiar, um, mate. It does. Like, you know, I went through the same thing. And and you know what, mate? Um, who taught us how to do this stuff, you know? Like, no one yeah. actually taught us how to self-regulate or how to, you know, de-escalate our emotions and, and that sort of thing, you know? We did what Dad did and Dad did what his dad did and so forth, you know? Yes, and, what yeah. we're doing now is, is actually like breaking these cycles. It's really important that we're having these conversations because we're actually like brave enough to be able to sort of break these these lineages where you know that behaviour is, um, is is perceived as being normal. Um, yeah. You know, and I didn't know any better. I thought I was the one that was earning all the money, so I, I was the most important. But I wasn't getting the support. But I was an asshole too. So I, I, I get it. Yeah. And, um, you know, uh, I wish I had have known what I know now back then, but it doesn't matter. You know, it's part of the journey. But, um, you know, mm. primarily uh, we've got a lot of work to do as men to be able to help, you know, guys um, to be able to be more more aware. And, you know, I, I yeah. believe the police force should be getting you back in there to be able to help young constables to be able to stay grounded rather than, you know, lose connection with themselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, funnily enough, like years after I left the police force, in 2018, I went back to the New South Wales Police Academy as a lecturer mm. and, mate, I lasted six months mm. for a couple of reasons. One was is that like, going back there and being exposed to all that stuff was reigniting all the things that, that caused me grief. But number two was I was actually talking to the students about mental health and why I got out of the cops and what I did afterwards and giving them hints and tips 
tips on how to look after themselves. And some of the managers said, mate, you don't talk about that sort of stuff here. We know it does cause mental health, but you don't talk about that at the Academy, Roger. So thanks for your time. Uh, We're terminating your contract. Shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I can yeah. imagine, you know, there is, a, there is a, unfortunately, a fine line, but you're talking about the truth and you're basically giving examples of what, you know, most yeah. probably will happen, but what you can actually do to manage it. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, and all I was doing to the for the students was saying, mate, don't rely on your bosses to to help with some sort of, um, you know, sending you away to see psychologists or something. Don't rely on the job to supply those resources. The resources are there. Grab them or go and find somebody that can, that can help you debrief because it's not going to happen every day in the cops. It mm. certainly won't. Mm. You need to debrief. You need to be honest with your partners. And you need to cry. And that's the thing that we don't do enough in these sort of jobs is cry. Mm, mm. Mate, bottling it all up was just horrible. And I still can't cry today. Yeah. It, it takes a hell of a lot to get me to a point of crying. And I, mm. I did my father's funeral and I couldn't even cry at that. Mm, yeah. You know, like, yep, yep. like I lost my dad after 50 odd years of being with him and I couldn't even cry. Mm, I know, mate. Loved him to death. To death, like fantastic man. He never beat me or was never mistreated me. Treated me with love and respect every single day. But mate, I couldn't even cry at my dad's funeral for God's sake. You know what, mate? Um, it's it's it, it is so important to be able to release emotions. Uh, yeah. You know, you can yeah. you can you can just keep putting the lid on them with a beer bottle or whatever. But uh, but really. Just getting off track a bit, a lot of the work that I do now is to help people learn how to do that, you know. It's not usually through the eyes, it's through releasing tension in the body and that, yeah. can, that can help you, you know, self-regulate, which which helps our emotional health. But but you're right yeah. and, uh, yeah, I'm the same. I, I, I can't remember. I might, I might get a little bit teary to last about 10 seconds and that'll be it, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, uh, yeah that, that release is so important for our mental health as well. Absolutely, absolutely. And... and on that topic as well, um, I might have mentioned with you that I, uh, I've been a participant and a mentor with an organisation called Trojans Trek, mm -hmm. which is a South Australian-based organisation, and we take all the a, a bunch of people out in the bush, men and women, just a small group. We do groups of 15 at the most, and on the very first day, within the first hour, we have everybody sit down and introduce themselves and just say why you're here. And it's funnily enough, it's then that some of the men actually start to cry there and then because they've had everything bottled up for so long mm. and then they just say, I'm here because I've got suicidal thoughts. I'm here because I've got homicidal and suicidal thoughts, blah, blah, blah. And you just see them break down and cry. Yes. And that's when you let them go. And you don't go over and hug them to suppress it. You just let them sit there and cry and cry and then move on to the next person. All right, we'll unpack that later on. But thank you very much for being honest. Mm. And over the next five days, that's when we unpack it a lot more. Mm. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. That's, that's so good to hear. So good to hear. Yeah, yeah. You know, getting, yeah. getting back to the police force, when yeah. you might have had a you know a compassionate conversation with someone in the police force uh, around yeah. how you were feeling, say if it was a HR department or whatever, was yeah. there any opportunity for them to be able to open you up like uh, you would around a circle like that? No, no. Look, it, it, it was rare to actually uh, be with the HR people and stuff like that because I was in stations, you know, hundreds of kilometres away from HR office or whatever rather, so... No, it was always via telephone or anything. Mm. But after I had this big, you know, when I had this big break after the, the murder and where I thought I was going to sh get shot and all that sort of stuff, I was on my eight weeks break 
I actually got a call from the HR assistant and she was the person that actually said that she cared and was going to do something about my welfare and everything. Mm. And it was at that point that I started to cry that finally somebody <laughs> in the organisation said that we care about you. Yes. And I'm literally on the other side of the state because we were away and I'm crying over the phone to someone that I've only met twice before. Mm. Yeah? Mm. But when, when I got back to work and people in uniform were hanging around me, not a single word, mm. nothing. Yeah. Nothing because they're from all the old school as well and that's what they were taught. Just keep it bottled up, guys. You know, yes. don't, don't be a wuss and don't, you know, don't be a girl and all that sort of stuff. Blah, blah, blah. Mm. And we have to change that culture. We have to change that mindset that to be tough, you've got to bottle up your emotions. Yes. Yeah, well said, mate. And thanks for sharing yeah. that to it. That's really important for people listening to, to, to understand that this is what we, 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 we've got to do as humans now moving forward into this decade yeah. and, and beyond. You know, this is where we can improve mental health because there's so many guys that are struggling that are they're bottling things up and they get to the point of uh, you know suicide or attempted suicide because they're um, yeah. they're, they're unable to uh, to learn to, to move through it you yeah know? And, um, yeah or if, or if they don't get to that point they're on the booze or they're on drugs they're on recreational drugs to to suppress all their emotions yes yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. They, they've been through rough trots of, of whatever it might be or they get addicted to gambling or whatever it might be mm. yeah we've got to be able to speak and i understand it with us men that we have a problem with using words and 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 unpacking our emotions i totally get that but that's something that we need to work on every day mate i'm 56 years of age and i'm still bloody learning how to do it <laughs> exactly yeah mate it's yeah. uh you know as we as we age and we get older um the more we uh you know pay attention to our own well-being um yep. then the best uh the better our lives can be you know we we neglect it or society you know leads us to neglect it considerably but um we've got to do work every day which you know get us back to that feeling feeling of uh, you know being grounded and good again you know that's that's how we can really support ourselves in this lifetime but if we do that then everyone yep. else benefits you know and if you're yep. waking up in the morning and you're thinking about work straight away and you're whacking a coffee and then a donut and then a pie at 10 o'clock and all those sorts of things you're just yep. throwing yourself out of rhythm consistently and um you know absolutely yeah yeah absolutely this is the stuff yep. that we can help you know young fellows understand early but also as we get older help people that are 56 learn you know uh, maybe great you've been through what you've been through, but we can actually help you start to turn the corner now where you can start to really, you know, get into fifth gear or sixth gear and start to thrive again, you know. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Amazing. Yeah, yeah. We and, can, we can and, uh, and on the topic of self-harm, just out of curiosity or whatever you like to call it, but uh, the most deceased persons I ever saw was suicides. Mm. There you go. Mostly I saw men. more death as a result of suicide than I did from road trauma or anything else. Mostly men, Rog? Uh, yeah, instead of, I saw more deaths as a result of suicide than I did from tr road traumas. Yeah, and mostly males? Uh, yeah, mostly males, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I saw a few attempted by female, mm. but all of the deceased people that I saw was all men. Yeah. Tell me, uh, how did you deal with a situation like that when it happened? Mate, come on, mate, <laughs> oh, Jesus, here we go. It, it was shit, absolute shit. Um, and, mate, one of the, well, all of the really bad ones happened while I was out at Houston, and um, one of them was a, a Vietnam veteran who took his life in a van 
in a small little van like a Tarago type thing and he'd been dead for five days and of course the flies had visited him and all that sort of stuff mm. and I was literally trying to pull a body out of a car and and pulling skin and flesh off the body while it was we we're trying to drag it into a body bag mm. and all I did was um, get home burn my uniform and go and have a shower and, and unpack it mm. yeah as best as I could and then two days after that, which was my birthday, I went back to the morgue and I had to identify the body to the uh, to, to the morgue uh, officers and to the pathologists and and yeah, and then I went back and back home and had to have a shower again, all that sort of stuff. And I'm sitting around the table while the kids are singing happy birthday while I could still smell corpse in my f- nose. Mm, you were yeah, and. There was a guy that you knew? You knew that guy? That, I didn't know that guy, but the two others that I did know, which happened a year later, mm. they, I put it this way, they'd hung themselves and I had to hold their body to my chest while I cut the rope from above their head. Mm. And then you know, I had to deal with them and treat them with, with respect and dignity. And the only way I could deal with it was by getting in contact with Libby or going to see Libby and, and just getting a hug. Mm. Yep. Just getting a hug. Anything that I asked for from the police department was not available because I was out in the middle of nowhere and the resources were too far away. So the only way to unpack it was to go home and give Libby a hug and say, that was shit. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. Yeah. And then go and try and find the the resources through a psychologist to help me deal with it. Mm, Yeah, mate. Yeah. No, that's that's, that's certainly uh, something uh, which, which is, you know, hard for a lot of people to understand. I know there's probably a lot of people, uh, people listening that have, have been affected by it. And um, yeah. yeah, you know, that's why we're gonna do what we're doing to be able to, you know, help divert those situations. And, and you know, a young fellow, like you said, like 18, and uh, yeah. that's, that's, that's common because, you know, young fellows get to yeah. that age and they're confused, you know, and um, <coughs> not able to sort of, you know, see clarity, um, which, is, which is really, yeah. you know, it's really yeah. sad. But we had a really bad stint at the end of that uh, 2002 along that area called the, uh, the uh, Murray Valley area like through Mildura and all that, the Sunraiser area. Yep. But we had something like 25 guys within six months commit suicide in that area. Mm. It was just horrible, absolutely horrible. Mm. Like we were in the middle of a drought. They were farmers or whatever it might be associated with the farming. So things were tough, really, really tough emotionally. And the only way they knew how to deal with it was by, you know, just getting out of it. Mm. Unbelievable, mate. Yeah. Tell me, uh, yep. those sorts of traumas were, you know, fairly significant. But obviously, as you went through your career, you yep. obviously you experienced, um, you know, something pretty, pretty, uh, you know, hard to take, which is workplace bullying. Uh, you know, doing yep. your job. How was that for you, mate? I, I have, I still have significant issues with workplace bullying today. But I, I struggle to uh, stay in a workplace, and it's cost us dramatically huge amounts financially and and emotionally with me because uh, i'm a runner mate if something becomes too hard we pack up and move Mm. mate we've been together 35 years and we've had 15 addresses Mm. so um yeah mate we're now living in canberra and mate i am working hard with uh mental health agencies and stuff like that to help deal with my stuff but um mate workplace bullying is is in fashion everywhere, in every organisation, always has, always will be, it'll never change. Mm. Um, and especially by hierarchical people, people in higher levels, because they all support each other. And it's always us at the grassroots level that are wrong, <coughs> because they know how to tick all the boxes. 
Um, and we have no power or authority to uh, to weigh against their argument. Mate, I, I have significant issues with uh, management and uh, I probably will until the day I retire. So, sorry, that's a rooster you can hear in the background as well. <laughs> mm. um, tell me, yep. um, what were some of the things that happened to you which were, which were fairly significant? Mate, fairly significant was just yelling, screaming, threatening, you know, do this, do that, do this, do that. Mate, and when I put my hand up and say I need a bit of a hand, no, you're just slacking off, you're wasting your time, you're drinking too much coffee at home with the family, you should be out on the street doing this job, that job. Um, threats of managerial action like uh, um, losing my rank, losing pay, losing my job. Uh, I had a report submitted about an incident that I dealt with uh, professionally and, and the, the right way and uh, basically it ended up with being uh, here is a show cause letter if you don't do an appropriate response you're going to be terminated mm -hmm. here and now. Um, that was dealt with in, a, in the most appropriate way by a new boss that I had at the time um, and then in the end after I uh, I was at I had the incident where I nearly killed the 15 year old boy and as a result of that I was charged criminally mm -hmm. and mate I went to court the magistrate cleared my name the following day my papers were signed by my boss and he told me that I no longer have a career so what happened in that incident so I was uh, we were living in Cooma and uh, mate, I, I was extremely proactive, mate. I I was chasing every criminal under the sun for whatever you can, mate. But I I don't like drugs in any way, shape, or form. Um, even recreational drugs like cannabis and stuff, I have no support, no no n nothing about them whatsoever, mm. because I've seen the end result of people using that sort of stuff. Yes. Anyway, so I had a uh, I had an operation going where I was targeting three or four dealers in town. And I was, I had all these intelligence reports being developed and anybody that came to or from those houses, I was uh, targeting those people, searching them, looking for drugs, finding drugs, charging them, getting intelligence reports and everything. And one night in August 2006, I was working late one night with uh, an off-sider and I had to go and get some fresh air. And uh, my off-sider, he said, look, I'm going to stay here and do some paperwork. So I said, look, I'll go for a drive for 10 minutes, get some fresh air, come back and just do a little bit more paperwork and we'll knock off by 12 o'clock. Yep, cool. So uh, I went for a drive and I went past my usual suspects. There was no no people there, but then I was going down one road in Cooma and uh, near towards one of my drug dealer's houses and I could see these two shadows walking down the road. And I thought, oh, I'll have a chat to these people. I'll just pull up, have a chat. Couldn't tell who they were, whatever, because it was dark. It was 10 o'clock at night. Um, as I got nearer to them, I saw them take off into a paddock. They were running away from a police car. So what does a policeman think? Mm. That they're up to no good. So I took chase in the police car. And I wasn't doing 100 miles an hour. I was only doing, I don't know, maybe 10, 15 k's an hour because it was a paddock. You know, is there going to be rocks or trees or whatever in the way, blah, blah, blah. Couldn't see these people, who they were or anything about them. One person was so fast running away, he took off in, over a hill and he was gone. I came alongside another one of the people and we were going towards an embankment and I swerved to avoid hitting the embankment, hit the brakes, jumped out to chase this person and then I found him under the police car and I had parked the police car on his back. Mm. 
Mate, he, no, I'm not going to go into any of the nitty-gritty over it all. It's all in the court case, and I'm not going to say anything too much about it. Mm. But I got out, I got back in the car, backed off him, rendered immediate first aid, called for urgent backup, um, explained everything over the radio, blah, blah, blah. The ambulance came. Um, they got him onto a stretcher, got him to the hospital. I was placed into custody straight away because it's now called a critical incident. And when police are involved in something serious like that, it's, it's called a critical incident. They get investigators from a different command to come and have a look so that and do the investigations so that there's no mates helping mates or anything like that. Mm. Um, from then on, I was on uh, I was on restricted duties, but then it ended up being work cover because I started to crash pretty seriously. I ended up being charged with two offences, one a criminal offence and one a traffic offence. The criminal offence, if I was found guilty on that, I would have gone to jail straight away. Mm. The traffic offence, I knew that uh, I, it's possible I could go to jail, but most likely lengthy, you know, lengthy disqualification, loss of licence, all that sort of stuff and a penalty and everything. Mm. I was so sick that the investigation got longer and longer and longer it eventually took nine months for me to finally get to court mm. but i was so sick that i pleaded guilty to the lesser charge because i knew if i was going to sit in court for two days to clear my name if i pleaded not guilty i was going to die simple mm. as that mm. Mm. simple as that because i was afraid that they would have a smart solicitor on the other side and they would uh he would coerce me into saying something that would send me to jail mm. i was absolutely certain i was going to die so I pleaded guilty to the lesser charge. Um, on the day of court, as I was waiting for my matter to be heard, um, I was literally walking around the court building looking for a hanging place. Shit. Literally looking for a hanging place while I was waiting for my court matter. Um, went into court. The magistrate summed up for over an hour and a half, and he says, Roger, I don't know why you pleaded guilty to this charge. It was a, a, terrible, a terrible accident. Accidents do happen like this. It's an absolute tragedy that it happened, but it was an accident and I dismissed the whole matter. Mm, thank God. My boss was in the courtroom. He watched the whole matter. He shook my hand. The next morning, he basically signed my medical discharge papers and said, thanks for your time, goodbye. Did you want that? No. Uh. No. But I was so... Mate, my, my head was just, to put it bluntly, F-U-C-K. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> mate, mate, my head was just shot and I didn't want that. I wanted to stay in the cops. All I wanted was to stay in the police force and if they put me in a roster room or radio room or whatever, some other place in the police department where I could just keep going with my career and never work on the streets again, I would have been happy. Mm. But no, he signed my papers the next day and I was basically terminated the day after I survived that matter. How did you feel, mate? Like, I, I, I can pretty well, I, I know how you felt, and it would have been completely, like, empty. It would have been completely, yep. like, uh, dejected, uh, useless, bloody confused, yep. you, you name it. A really, really Absolutely. Low, low level of, uh, of consciousness. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, over, over the previous nine months, I knew that um, my gun and all my uh, personal uh, safety equipment, like my baton and everything, was taken away as they do, which is fine. I don't care about that. But I thought that, you know, just leave it be. Let's just see how we go. Normally what would happen, which I know from other police officers that have been involved in incidents similar to that, 
they would have another three months off to rest, recuperate and get back on the bike and go somewhere uh, into a, a, you know, like an admin role somewhere. Mm. But I wasn't even given that opportunity. <clears throat> mm. I wasn't even given that opportunity and that's what really sticks. Mm. Right, no questions, no, no discussion, no sitting over a cup of tea, not a single thing, not a single thing. Uh, just a phone call. Roger, I've just signed your medical discharge forms. Thank you. Mm, unbelievable. Like, but, yeah. And that's the sort of bullying, and that's why I don't trust management today. I just simply do not trust management at all. Mm. Mate, it takes a lot for me to trust my bosses. Yeah, it's, you know, I, I, I often talk about uh, our boss being a transformational leader rather than a transactional leader. You know, you're not yeah. just there just to get a paycheck. You actually need to be able to help an individual be a better person inside and outside yeah. the workplace, you know. And, and yeah. there's none of that, you know. He's a man that's put a lot into his job, you know, been exposed to some pretty horrific things over the years, very little compassion for any of that, uh, very little support for any of that. And, um, you know, yeah. it's like you're, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're chewed up and spat out really quickly and that's, uh, that's yeah. really disappointing, you know. Yeah, yeah. And I, I look at it this way, like I... I I, I did some research on this this boss. He was my boss for six years. And in the six years that he was my boss, there was only once where he actually sat down with me and actually spoke to me at an almost human level, and that was the night of my accident. Mm. And he sat down in the meal room at Puma Police Station and made me a cup of tea, and we spoke about nothing at all, mm. really. Mm. But he had to tick that box that he came out and he sat with the officer, blah, blah, blah. And then I... I, I you know, I lasted 17 years. And then on his final day of work, after 43 years in the police force, he was on the front page of the Aubrey newspaper saying, I've just finished a, a stellar career of 43 years. I've been decorated on a number of occasions. Yeah, good good for you, buddy. But look at the damage that you've caused <laughs> other people. Yeah. You know, look at the damage that you caused. Like, literally, because of your lack of compassion and ability to support your staff, you had staff that were willing to take their life. Simple mm. as that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Simple as that. Yeah, mate. And, and see, this is a really important, you know, part of this conversation. If for anyone listening that is in a leadership role, for God's sake, you know, lose focus of performance and outcomes, and actually, like, give a fuck about the people that are doing the work with you and work with them, not against them. You know. Exactly, and, and the thing is, when you become a person in a leadership position. Your role is not to be a leader. Your role is to serve your staff who make you look good. Mm. You are in a leadership position to make them better than you so that your performance improves. You need to look after your staff so that they can do what they were hired to do instead of making them sick. Yes. You know? And, and mate, we, all, we all can see people that have a broken leg, broken arm. It's a broken thing. But when we've... When we've been subjected to these sort of things and we have a broken mind, we can't see it. So we don't see that it's broken. Mm. But people are suffering. They do suffer every day. Mm. And if you aren't humble enough as a leader to understand that, you should not be in that position. Mm. Blow, Simple as that. A blow to the heart is more powerful than a blow to the body. Yeah. Uh, and if you're getting them consistently, but you're still trying to put on a brave face, it's it's really detrimental to you uh, as a mm. as a as a person, you know. And um, yeah, 
Yeah, I think the uh, the leadership uh, of many, uh, I suppose, in the public service, but also in private industry, has got to change. You know, because if yeah. you if you take people on a journey with you, uh, and you really love and support and care for them, uh, everything takes care of itself. The role takes care of, takes care of itself. You're a better policeman. Yeah. You're giving back to the community better. You're more compassionate yeah. to the community. All those sorts of things. You know, yeah. I, I believe. You know. Force is necessary in some situations, but having compassion is so much more powerful. You can get better outcomes if you've got compassion when you're actually dealing with uh, a problem uh, rather than actually yeah. like being forceful. And uh, yeah. you, know, you think about it, you, you, you come in that way and the other person responds the same way. You come out in with understanding and care and, um, you know, those sorts of um, feelings and all of a sudden then you will get a better response. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And if I was given the care and compassion and support back then, I wouldn't have had to know that my wife, that Libby, was ringing me up three to four times a day to make sure that I was alive. Mm. Mm. She didn't want to come home at the end of the day and find me. She didn't want the kids to come home from school and find me dead. So she was ringing three to four times a day or calling in to pick up her lunch that she'd mysteriously left at home or whatever mm. rather. Yeah. And that is what needs to be addressed, mm. you know, these sort of situations. Yeah. Our partners know that we're not well. Our partners know or have a fairly good idea that something's going on. Yeah. I, I don't know what it is, but they, they have this thing that they know something's not right and it's pretty sad when your wife rings up and says, please don't do it and have me find you. Yes, yeah. Yeah, that happened, that happened to you. Yeah, absolutely, mm. yep, mm. yep, yep, you can ask Libby, and it's in my book, the book that I've wrote, the last chapter was written by Libby, and she says that in there, that she was coming home or ringing me up three to four times a day to make sure that I didn't commit self-harm, mm. and she didn't want the kids to find me, so she was always home before the children. Mm. Yeah. Mate. That, that's pretty shit, isn't it? It is, absolutely. And a lot of that stemmed from your job, you know. That, that, absolutely. You know. It all came from the police career. Yeah. It all came yeah. from my police career. Yeah. I was burnt out. I was doing, you know, 8, 10, 12-hour days on night shift, being called out, lack of sleep, broken sleep, bad diet because you're eating at all sorts of stupid hours. Mm. There is a real illness associated with shift work. It's a true illness because you're – Circadian rhythms are out of whack, Um, and then you're eating crap food, you're drinking too much booze, you're committing everything to the job, calling in after hours just to do one quick thing, and you're there for two or three hours, whatever it might be, blah, blah, blah. I was just so dedicated to the job, but not dedicated to my own self and my own family, Mm. Yeah, because I was getting a buzz out of work, but it was literally killing me. Yes. Absolutely, mate. In its mm. essence, you know, you're looking for that stimulation, you know, and, yeah. and, and really yeah. that that is where we've got to start to be aware of our emotions because if you're yeah. if you're flicking the switch all the time, eventually that that switch is going to burn out, and um, yeah, you're you're going to uh, to struggle, and you know that's a, a big problem we have as as men in society. We're actually like lit up. Uh, consistently, we don't actually learn how to, to de-escalate and, and come back to that that balance again. You know, it's that, um, that's right. It's so important, yeah. and and, um, and and that's and that's how I came up with the title of my book, "The Price of Protecting Others," mm. 
because it literally was a price that I paid, that we paid as a family. Yes. Thank God we've got three well-rounded, beautiful, intelligent, giving children that love us to death. Mm. Mate, thank God I've still got contact with them. Thank God I've still got a wife that sleeps next to me every day. (laughs) Um, But the price of protecting others, mate, I nearly paid the ultimate price and so did my family, Mm. yeah. I think there's a lot more like you around, mate, that's for sure. I'd really like to know... I really encourage people to get hold of your book and, and have a read of it, mate. Um, what yeah, are the best yeah. ways to do that, Rog? Uh, you, they can order it online through Amazon, Booktopia. Um, just look up the title, uh, The Price of Protecting Others, or look up my name, Roger Eichler. Um, I've got a website where you can go to links and it'll take you through to Amazon or whatever. What's it called? Uh, what's, Dim- what's, Dim- what's, what's the website, Sorry? Rog? What's the website? The website is Roger Eichler Author. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, so it's my it's my name with the word author afterwards. So RogerEichlerAuthor.com.au. Um, yeah, and uh, mate, it's available through any online retailer, and it's all uh, as you know with books these days. They don't have a warehouse full of books. It's all print on demand. Mm. You order it today, you'll get it within five to seven days or so. Is that yeah. a siren I can hear in the background? It certainly is. Yes, <laughs> of course, mate. We live down the road from a fire station. <laughs> Tell me, mate, uh, have you connected with other coppers or uh, other frontline workers that have, um, you know, had the same sort of, uh, you know, things as you and been able yeah. to you know, get out and want to do something about it? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, mate, I'm in contact with a bunch of um, other people, of course, through what I do, through Trojan's Trek and all that sort of stuff. And through uh, Police Legacy, we had a program which was called Backup for Life, supporting ex-cops getting out and learning how to be normal citizens again um and mentoring them helping them cope with not wearing a uniform carrying a gun and all that sort of stuff and uh, mm. mate it's tough and and libby was a mentor for the partners and uh mate there there's a, a lot of people out there getting out of these sort of jobs even ambos and fireys and they're so used to wearing that uniform and living on that adrenaline 24 7. yeah how do you become normal how do you sit in a restaurant and be happy with your back to the door but that's weird for us cops we, because we're always on the lookout for danger. Mm. We always have to sit where you're watching the door, who's coming through. You're scanning people for weapons. Mm. Um, that's just a second nature thing. Um, yeah, it's strange. You're walking through crowds and you're, you're looking and, you know, oh, there's a drug deal going down right there. You see it. Others don't. But, you know, you're, you're aware of these sort of things. Mm. Um, it, it's really hard to switch off. Mm. It's really hard to switch off. So what are you doing now? Look after yourself, Rog. What am I doing now? Well, um, look, I haven't been the most successful at it, but at least I'm making steps in the right direction. I'm getting into, uh, I've done yoga, I've done mindfulness, Pilates, a little bit of fitness. Not that I'm turning into Arnold Schwarzenegger by any means, (laughs) but uh, I love to jump on a mountain bike and go for a ride, uh, go for good walks. We've got a dog, so that's a great excuse to go for a walk. And today, which is my second time I've done it, is playing a thing called disc golf, Mm -hmm. which is playing golf with frisbees, basically. (laughs) And you go to you go to parks. We've got three parks here in Canberra, and you just play a course with a couple of other people or by yourself, and you're you're walking out in nature, reconnecting with nature, and switching off from that goddamn phone. Mm, That's it. Leave the phone at home. You don't need it. You don't need to be hooked up to social media. 24 7 mm. you don't need to be hooked up to all that rubbish all the time and i don't watch the news 
Yeah, big thing. Either way. <laughs> mate, mate, you're not missing anything if you don't see the news every day. Yeah. Mate, all that's filled is with tragedy. And if I wanted to see death, dying and car accidents, I might as well stay in the cops. <laughs> Well, that's you a, don't need to see that rubbish. Well, that's a good uh, a good um, lesson for people to look after their mental health better. You know, to, to yeah. actually like restrict yourself from bringing on any of that trauma that you don't really need. You know. Yeah, yeah. and all those people that have their bloody smartwatches hooked up to their phones, so they're getting notifications forty times a day. Yes. Get rid of it. Yeah, you don't need it. It's not important. Yeah. It isn't important. I come from the same school as you where I was around when computers weren't around, mate. So uh, I, yeah. I know how good it was to get a letter in the mail and, uh, and that's yeah. the only uh, yeah. way you found out about stuff, you know. It was um, yeah. much better, that's yeah. for sure, Rog. But, you know, we've got to live in this world now and we've got to do things that keep us well. And, uh, yeah. you know, we've just got to continually um, strive to support each other as we, as we move forward. Yeah. Like at 56, you'll be a better person at 66, 76, 86 and beyond, you know, if Absolutely. you are committed to, to looking after yourself, you know. Yeah. And, and, um, and, and, and of course, as, as we've discussed, uh, one of the best things I'm doing for my mental health is I've written this bloody book and, and spilt it all out. It took mm -hmm. me six years and a lot of therapy to go through a lot of these big jobs and turning a really angry, horrible book into a good educational book. Yeah. But now I'm talking to people like you, and as I talk, I'm letting the poison out. Yep, absolutely, mate. Yeah, and talking to Rotary groups about it and, and any support groups or going and helping with um, any of these, you know, like Trojan's Treks or Soldier On or Black Dog or whatever, going and talking, meeting people and getting that crap out because if you don't get it out, it's going to kill you. Yep. 100%, mate. You can squash it with a can of beer or whatever, but, you know, yep. yeah, you've got to be able to speak, and it's not weak to do that. And uh, yep. certainly, uh, you know, we're in a better place now than what we maybe were 30 or 40 years ago because it's actually okay to talk about this sort of stuff, you know. And uh, Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the reason why the Outback Mind Foundation is here is to, you know, try and help people to be proactive with regards to looking after themselves. And, you know, if there yep. is stuff going on, to be able to, like, you know, let it, let it go uh, when you need to. And uh, I think we we all need yeah. to do that, mate, because we spend too much time between our ears otherwise. Um, yeah, absolutely, yeah. And uh, it's important that we, we look after each other, um, you know, moving yeah. forward. I really believe that, Rod. So I'm yeah. so, so grateful for the chat, mate. I'm sure we're going to have many more in the future. Um, absolutely, I'd mate. Love, I'd love to keep in touch. Yeah, I'd love to do a, um, a couple of talking sessions out there with you somewhere uh, down the track, yeah. you know, with regards to getting out and doing this sort of stuff in the community and um, yeah, for sure. You know, I think that's really important to be able to get out there and, and share your journey mm. and, uh, and start to help uh, others, you know, that may be in the job or not in the job to be able to learn from what you have gone through. And, uh, you know, that, mm. that lived experience is so important moving forward, mate. Yeah, yeah, mate, because, mate, it's a hard school of knocks, that's for damn sure. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. I, and I'd like to say there's an education in there with it. <laughs> <laughs> there is, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Pleasure, yeah. mate. Thank you so much, mate. You have a lovely afternoon.